I will, we hope we'll conclu- conclude the parak, and then we're going to do some halakha on the parak, um, some new halakha on the parak, if you will, um, that's just been produced as well. So, if you recall the last time, we, we dealt in particular um, with the story of Yalta. Okay, a very interesting story. Let's look, just to review the story. Anun Aleph Amud Bet, 51b, 224 in this book. And it's right... 325. Sorry? 325. It's right near the end, so it shouldn't be too difficult to find. So, the story is that Ula happened to be in the house of Rav Nachman. They had some bread that had saved Birkat Amazon, and he did. He gave the course to Rav Nachman to, do, to lead it, and said, Amarle Rav Nachman, please, sir, give this cup to Yalta. Who is Yalta? Okay, she is the, the wife of... Rav Nachman. Rav okay? So Ula now becomes a protagonist of saying, I don't want to do this, you give it to her. Amar le'hachi amar Rav Nachman. Ain't pribit na shalisha mitbarech, and we pribit no shalish. Her childbirth, her ability to give childbirth, is only blessed because of his abilities. And then we have a, a little bit extra. Rabbi Natan Amer, how do we know it? Etc. That's kind of the, what we'll call in in um, in, in so Graham, in, in a sense of uh, um, putting brackets around it, we just have an explanation. Now we come back to the story. Adhachi Sham Al Yalta. She heard what was going on. Kama Bezihira. She got up very quickly. She went to the wine cellar. And she broke apart 400 casks of wine. Amarli Rav Nachman. So now, so get another cup. Let's do it again, kind of thing. Amarle Rav, okay. Shalachla kolhag negav navga de birchatagi. So basically, he said, "Look, if you don't drink it, you can drink from the wine that's that's there as such." Shalchalim yadurei milayim we smart tute kalme, which is a very difficult thing. Says from things that things come out of different things, and from smart tutim. From rags come out vermin. Okay? So, that's the story. So, let's just review the story itself. You have your hand up? Or you're just no. gonna, okay, sorry. So, well, let's review the story itself. Okay? Hula's at Rav Nachman's place. Does he do Gazbirkatamazon with the Yayan? And rather than giving it the cup straight to Yalta, he says, Rav Nachman, you give it to Yalta. She's affronted. Then the Talmud says, why? comes back and she's so affronted that what happens? She goes, smashes apart these chavit, uh, the, um, uh, the caskets of wine. Rav Nachman tries to make peace and she sends back this horrible thing. Okay? How dare you, etc. You can't tell if it's against Rav Nachman. can't tell if it's against Ula. Presumably it's against Ula, etc. That's where our story ended. Last time I began to spend some time on Yalta, who was a fascinating individual, um, and um, Fran said that, that she and Betsy had done some work on it, so if they want to add something, they're more than welcome to after that. Or you can say it's Betsy's responsibility since she's not here. That's what I thought, you know. So I, I handed out, 
I handed out last week um, from the Encyclopedia, or last time, Encyclopedia Judaica, uh, was the equivalent of the third edition, a little bit of background on Yalta. Some people weren't here. And it, I don't have enough for everybody. I have one more. I'll make some more. Oh, I have here. I do have another one. I got it. Okay. All right. I have one. Larry? I got one. Okay, so there are three stories about Yalta. I'll bring some more, you know, next time. Now, if we have to, if everybody gets a chance to look on. I think we read it, but let's read. Let, what is the next one? Anybody eating? Yeah, Okay. So, this is English. Somebody want to read it for us? Not all at once. All right, thank you, Ron. <laughs> okay, so she is of substantial, there's one extra, and substantial uh, pedigree. She is the daughter of the Exilarch. And the Exilarch is equivalent to the Patriarch in, in Palestine, therefore of the head of the community and head of ultimately almost close to royalty within the head of the Jewish community. Let's put it that way. When Nachman entertained prominent scholars, he would ask them to send her their greetings. On one occasion, he asked Rob Judah, a prominent contemporary decision on a legal matter, to send her greetings. Judah objected. However, quoting successive statements in the name of Samuel as to the impriety of having associations with women. Okay, so you've got a little bit of misogyny involved in this too. Okay? Association with women, there is this tradition. Why? Lest it lead to. Not mixed dancing, but worse than that. <laughs> Yalta thereupon sent a message to her husband. Settle his case before he makes you appear like any ignorance. On another occasion... Here you go, this is our case. On another occasion, when her husband was entertaining Tula, and the later stubbornly refused to send her any wine of the cup over which he had recited a blessing. She reportedly broke 400 jars of wine in her anger. Okay, that's the text that we had. That's the story. She also apparently had a sharp tongue and commented on his refusal. Gossip comes from peddlers and vermin from rags. For example, what can you expect from a man like that? Okay, she's, this is an affront to Ula, who was not a small scholar in Babylonia, but too darn bad. You gave me, you affronted me, you were going to get it too. When dissatisfied with the ruling of one rabbi, she appealed to another, apparently concealing from him the fact that she had already consulted one. She once said to her husband, the Torah has permitted something of a similar taste for everything that it has forbidden. I would like to eat meat in milk. Whereupon he told the butcher he had her roasted udder. <laughs> so this is quite a woman. Fran, do you have anything to add so far? Nope? Okay. All right. All right just, okay. uh, she, she, there's three or four places where she's mentioned. Again, unusual to mention a woman in a Talmudic story. Okay? Besides Gruria, there's a few that we always take out as, you know, same as we do in the biblical times. Deborah, some of the matriarchs, etc. You know, Hannah, 
Okay, but so it's an unusual story, and therefore you need you need some background. So I did spend a little bit of time the last time looking for research. I found this interesting one, which came from Chabad.org um, on on the 400 barrels of wine, and you'll see the interesting justification that they give. There may not be quite enough, so if the couples can share if necessary. I appreciate it. There may be and there may not. I'm just not sure. So as you can see, I don't know who Ellie Raxton is, to be honest with you. Um, there's, there's a few other things on the... Well, I found this most interesting because it deals specifically with our particular story. Um, and in our particular story... Okay, thank you. Oh, this thing. All right, so there's next, another one here. All right. What is her father's name? Excellent. Uh, I forget. I forget who her father is. Just call your excellent. Abba. No, I, no I, I just don't remember who they, they. They don't say it, so I'm not positive. Okay. Again, somebody want to start reading for us? There are a few. Women, Thank you. There are a few women named in the Talmud. One is Yalsa, the wife of Rab Nachman, a third-generation Babylonian Amara, and the daughter of the Reish Galuta the leader of the Jewish people in the diaspora. Her husband allowed her to be carried on a sedan chair on Shabbat, though this is generally a forbidden act since she was a great person from the public media. Okay, now that story's not mentioned in our in the story here. So she was given a great deal of honor by her husband doing something against the laws of Shabbat because presumably of her pedigree, who she was ancestry becomes the important thing, not because she wasn't necessarily a scholar, Okay, though she was involved, as we see, in, in uh, some disputations, but because of her pedigree, her yichas. Okay, why don't we just do paragraph by paragraph and go along. Nina? Nina? One time, Rab Nachman and his wife Yalta hosted the sage Ula. After eating, Rab Nachman honored Ula with a recital of grace after meals. It's a mitzvah to recite the grace on a cup of wine and then share it with the meal participants. This cup of wine is called Kos Shebracha, cup of blessing. After finishing the blessings, Ula sent the cup of wine down the table to Rab Nachman for him to partake in the mitzvah. Rab Nachman said, let the cup of wine be sent to my wife Yalta. Ula responded that it wasn't necessary because a wife receives the blessing from the Kos Shebracha via her husband partaking of the drink. Since the cup had already been given to Rav Nachman, it would be wasteful to give Yalta a drink as well. Okay, everybody with us? That's the, that's the story. Go ahead. When Yalta heard the response, she became angry and went down to a wine cellar and broke 400 barrels of wine. Recognizing his mistake, Ula sent another cup of wine to her with an appeasing message. But Yalta rebuffed him, saying, all your words are as meaningless as a peddler's mm -hmm. tale. So much more uh, all right, so so much what? 
What? Yeah, they say such modest words here. Yeah, the, right. This is, you know, Chas V'Shalom and Chabad that they would use these kind of words. So, okay. Now, again, it's, what it says here, that Ula is the one who, who goes ahead and, and tries to do it. All right? And to stand and to kind of make a appeasement. What is the eight peddler's tale? I don't understand. What? I, I couldn't hear, sorry. What does that mean? What's a, what, you know, a peddler's tale means the yichus of a peddler is you know what and a tale is don't believe him no no in other words you, what you say don't give me that yes, <laughs> you know exactly just it's a nicer way to say what it said right right in other words who the heck are you instead of saying that they right just know as the shon nikiah alright just do the next little paragraph too now Yatov is very upset with Ula's actions, but how could such a holy and special woman act in such I mean, ha- come on, women don't act like that, do they? Uh-huh. Especially, I don't want to deal with that. Holy and, and special women. How could she just go and destroy 400 barrels of wine? Was she really that great a woman? Yalta was indeed a great woman. She was... Uh, Appropriately upset that the koshel bracha wasn't sent to her, she desired only to partake in the great mitzvah. To demonstrate that her desire was for the mitzvah, not the wine, she smashed the wine in the cellar. I'm not sure I get that. <laughs> you know, still baltashkit, as we'll see in a moment. What does it mean that since she wanted only the bracha, she smashed all the wine? Because now that she didn't want to drink the wine, is that what it's supposed to say? Right, it's sort of it wasn't about the wine. It wasn't about the wine, it was about the bracha. Yeah, well, it's a great way to say it. I'm not sure I agree with that interpretation. I think she had a horrible amount of anger, very frankly, and took it out on whatever was closest to her. You know, it's like smashing your, your hand through the wall, though the wall did nothing to you. And then you say, whoops, as you hurt your hand. All right? Fran, you want to go out just quickly? Keep going. Where are you going? Sure. Um, Indeed. Indeed. When someone destroys something for a purpose, for example, to teach a lesson, there is no prohibition of baltashkit, wanton destruction. For example, the custom of bringing a glass at a wedding as a remembrance for the destruction of Jerusalem is not prohibited because of baltashkit. All right. Now, most of it, you know, interesting concept. In other words, for the purpose of a lesson. Who is she teaching the lesson to? That's the, is she teaching it to Ula? She's taking it out on Rav Nachman. Yeah. She's not taking it. Huh? No, Rav Nachman's. It was his house. Their, their wine. It was their, her own personal wine. It was. Her, still, it's, it's wasteful. You would think. For, and 400 barrels, guys. I mean, you know, how long would it take you to destroy 400 barrels? Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, you would think that he would hear something after the second barrel. Exactly. Something happened, and all of a sudden he would do something about it. So maybe it didn't really happen. So let's see what happened. Now they're going to play. This is now we're going to deal with some very interesting ways to do it. Go ahead. Meaning miserliness. Miserliness. Kaptanut. It adds up to the concept of gematria ayin ra. Not ayin ha ra, interesting. They couldn't drop the hay, so only ayin ra. Hmm? It doesn't work, though, right? 
Yalta was very upset at Ula's uh, stinginess. In not sending her divine to partake in this special mitzvah. Therefore, to teach Ula a true lesson of generosity, she broke the seals. The seals on 400 barrels. Hasve Shalom, she should do 400 barrels, right? Not the barrels themselves. And distribute the divine to needy people to use for Kiddush. Ah, what a wonderful woman. What a wonderful woman. This is this guy's interpretation, as far as I know. You know, the first interpretation could be just as right. Of course it could, but he can't. He can't abide by the fact that she would destroy all the the, the wine, get rid of the barrels. Uh, she's such a, a pious and religious and special woman, and he'll to expect that she would go off her rocker in this anger and everything else. Oh my God, impossible. So she wanted to make sure that she broke the seals. If you broke the seals, you're not going to drink it, right? And she gave it all away. Now again, how much time are we dealing with here? All right, we're dealing supposedly with their upstairs. It's not like he's come back six months later. You know, it's still very odd in that sense, right? Since Ola tried to no, we'll finish we'll finish Yalta, we know that she broke the seals for altruistic, altruistic purposes. If she was just a foolish woman venting her anger, why would such a great sage try to appease her? My God, this is it. it's her house. I mean, it's Rav Nachman's house. It's it's an affront to Rav Nachman, who wanted, who was upset by it too. This is a, this is a way of, of pill pool of trying to make sure that everybody comes off well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Here you go. Yalta's attribute of truthfulness was evident in her name. The numerical value of Yalta, U10, Lama 30, Tau 400, and Aleph 1, 441, is the same as MF, truth. Aleph 1, Lama 40, Tau 400. Her proper and truthful actions spoke for themselves. Okay. So my question is, is there any hint of that in the... No. That's what, that's what Mepharshim do. That's what if you, you know, no. There, he's now taken away the sense of anger, the sense of Baltashri, and she still remains a religious, pious woman by giving away the wine because she's filled with, with truth. It's one of the commentators on a Talmudic story. I don't know. Oh, much, much, much later. I don't even know who it is. So what's fascinating to me is that we have these commentators trying to save face for a woman. Yeah. Not only that, but saving it for Ula, too. Because Ula's the bad guy here, and they also save face. Well, look what they say about Ula. Since Ula tried to placate, placate she, we know, etc. In other words, Ula was, was also righteous. You know, he tries to placate her, etc., too. He's forced into this somehow, and he's Rav Nachman's house. He's heard this smashing and everything else. But there's no doubt that she's, since she's mentioned, she's the wife of Rav Nachman, she's a daughter of the XLR, she's mentioned a number of times in Talmudic week, she's got to come out as a tzaddeket. Right? She's got to come out as some sort of righteous, pious woman, and so you create the pill pool of trying to do that. Okay, I want to read you one other, I didn't want to give you this whole thing. Uh, this is by Sarah Hurwitz, who was, uh, was the first rabbah, as such. Describes a guest, Rabbi Ula, coming to dinner of Nachman's house and refusing to pass a cup that had been blessed by y to Yalta after Nachman requested he do so. Instead, he cited a verse saying, The fruit of a woman's body is blessed from a fruit of a man's body. In rage, Yalta stormed out away from the table, broke 400 wines of, jars of wine in her cellar. 
Nachman Chardulan asked him once again to give her the juice, which he refused, and then she retorted that gossip comes from peddlers and vermin from rags. Now, it's interesting, that's not, it's very interesting, she doesn't talk about, at that point, that she went down, broke them, and then Ula tries to placate, so it's, I think she takes the story a little bit out of its simple meaning too. No one was actually sure what the last line meant. However, the story itself involves some interesting symbolism. The line that Ula quotes treats women like a vessel that must be blessed and fertilized by a man. And in breaking 400 bottles of wine, Yalta, quite dramatically, shows Ula the necessity of that vessel, the woman. Without the vessel holding in the wine, nothing can be contained. Just as without the woman, a man cannot reproduce. Hurwitz acknowledged the excess in Yalta's actions, 400 bottles is a lot, but also emphasized the powerful message that she sent. In other words, how does Sarah Hurwitz take it? This is a point of feminism. She is showing him, you think you can, this can be a man's world? Without the vessel, the cask, of, the cask of wine, you will not produce the next generation. You better be nice to me as well. It's a very feminist reading of this as well. How do I know it? I don't know. That's her interpretation. This is Sarah Hurwitz. Sarah Hurwitz was the first rabbah, okay, who, was create, who uh, went through uh, the program. Um, and um, that she gave this as a Devar Torah someplace. So you, as you can see, it depends how you want to interpret this particular story, because it's a very difficult story, and it depends if you're on Yalta's side, which most of the commentators want to be, because she's a righteous woman. Ula does not come off well. Rav Nachman comes out okay. Her husband, he wants to treat her properly. He wants to placate her. And Ula, at that force, basically says, all right, I'm willing to kind of try it again. After, And she says, oh, the heck with you. It's basically what she says. Who the heck are you at this point trying to placate me? Now, this 400 caskets of wine is really, as it says, a lot. And you can imagine the noise that it made in everything. So the, the Chabad interpretation is, she couldn't destroy that. This was a righteous woman, right? So what did she do? She took off the seals, gave it all away to Tzedakah to the Fabdallah and Kiddush and, but the wine was no longer usable for Rav Nachman and taught him and Ula a, a lesson but the story that lasted was the one that's in the Talmud of course the rest is, it, the rest is interpretation all of that so she did make her point yeah but again it's typical of any story you then have interpretations upon the story and it depends how you see the narrative Who's from which side you see it? Sarah Hurwitz is such a feminist reading of it that's clearly it's not the pshat, it's not the simple meaning. There's no way that I believe that the Talmud really meant that. Okay, that she meant that this is a vessels, and, but that's a reading. It's an it's it's interesting reading of it. In the same way as the Chabad is an interesting Ayn Ra and Yalta and, and, and you know and that kind of thing. Yes. What, in the other words, if you, if you, in your wine cellar, which of course you have one, of course, Bob goes down and opens a, a seal and leaves it there. Are you going to drink that over time? Over time, probably not. But presumably, when she broke the seal, she gave it away right away. So the, 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 they were the, just lined up waiting for because you know they all knew it was going to happen. <laughs> so, 
fascinating stories, and I just thought the interpretations were, were interesting as they take them, because it's a difficult story. It comes, you know, it makes sense in our context because of Koshel Bracha, Birkat Amazon. But they have these traditions of Yalta, they're placed in different places, having to do with that particular issue. It's not like they have a whole story about Yalta in the middle. And, it, and what is approved? There is Koshel Bracha. You can't ask somebody else to do it. Remember, there was a whole question of who does the Birkat Amazonet at your house. Here he asks Ula to do it. It is permissible. And then they have a whole story about what happened after Ula did it, um, which they clearly had as part of the oral tradition. And it does make sense to put it here with a little bit of things in, um, in, in, in sort of brackets to explain pre-Bitna and pre-Bitna, etc. Questions, comments? Fran, anything? That's all we know. And, and, uh, and the wife of Rav Nachman. I think it's an interesting. Anger. I think it's a fascinating point. Just that the women that are mentioned, and I, I wish I could recall some of the stories, but you see these women engaging their husbands often in an uncomplimentary manner where mm -hmm. they will say, you know, stop arguing with so and so. He's well, you have in the Tanur Shalach, the end of the Tanur Shalachnai story, the, the, the wife of Rabbi Ezer, the daughter of Rabbi Gamliel, pleads with him not to pray. Yeah. But all these women are, I think it's an interesting point you made. I think uh, the women are all, who do make it into Shas, are all, you know, very strong and outspoken. Maybe that's a way of saying these are the way women shouldn't be. <laughs> there would be some who would say that. You better be careful. It's hard to believe considering what's in the rest of the text. <laughs> that's an interesting point. It says, they're in here to women should be strong. It's hard to believe based on what's written in the rest of the text that we've all studied here. No, no, he said shouldn't be strong. Shouldn't be strong. Because look what happens to Gloria. Look what happens to Yalta. All right? They don't come off in the end so well. You know, I mean, she, there's an affront here to her, but you have to be able to say, look what she did. I mean, was that appropriate what she did? Yeah, it may have anger, but to take it out the way. In Brewery, as you know, there's a whole story in Russia about well, she was led astray by one of the students of Rabbi Mayer. So maybe the lesson is maybe you shouldn't be so outspoken and so strong. Again, that's what the stories ain't Shane, that they are what they are, and then you add your own interpretations from where you sit or where you stand. And nothing is different in life to this day. Um, is there some kind of explanation of what got included and what didn't get included? We really don't know. We, 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 
The, the, the story to that is the editing of the Talmud. The Talmud itself says that the last ones who did it was Ravina and Ravashi, which is about 499 of the Common Era in Babylonia. We know historically that's not correct. There's a whole group after them known as the Saboraim, who are the editors. It's not really edited till probably the 8th or 9th century. Scholarship tries to go back to the original source to see what may have been originally. Shama Friedman was one of my professors uh, in Israel and was a professor at the seminary for many years. Um, tried, it's his shita to try to go back to the very source. David Weissalivni as well. What was the original text? Because then you have layers upon layers to get to the text. And when you get the layers upon layers, that's when you kind of move from what may have been the original argument to other arguments. And the second thing you have to understand is this was all oral. This was an orality issue. It was not everybody was religious. It was teacher, disciple, small group people. Symposia, even in later times, as, as such. And so the additions are much later, and the editing is done. We don't know how it's done in the same way as we don't know Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, and that's an hour lecture, of how it was done to get the Mishnah together. Um, and you can't see it as a book. There was no printing. As Lieberman, I think, correctly proves, it means there was an authoritative text. Not a book. It's not like you you write a book, you publish it, and that becomes the text. There was no text. It became the oral tradition. And what happens, of course, is there were different traditions. That's why the Talmud goes back forth and everything. So it's very difficult to know what was included, was not included, and who did it. That's what Talmudic scholarship still is about. Was there any copy written down? No, you, there was no writing per se at this such. There eventually were scrolls, but if you look at the Talmud, what do you, how many scrolls would you have to have? A lot. Right. Okay. Four hundred barrels worth. So you, you, there's no, you know, it, it becomes a, an authoritative text. Eventually, you get a scroll, but again, when you have a scroll, how are you going to produce those scrolls? You know, we know of monks in the Middle Ages sitting for their entire lives reproducing scrolls. That's what you had to do. Hand, you know, copy immediately. You make mistakes. That's why there's manuscripts. And that's why there's different readings. And in order to do real scholarship, you have to go back to the manuscript. There's a whole set of books known as Dictuke Sofrim, which are all manuscript changes in the Talmud. If you really want to do Talmudic scholarship on the highest level, you have to take that and look at the different manuscripts. Check, check this check with perhaps with the Yerushalmi. With the Jerusalem Talmud, is there, a, is there a comparative text? Is there a text in the, some of the halakhic midrashim? That's part of the problem. So if the way I'm studying with you is more of a literary kind of approach, let's take it as it is, try to analyze each one, what are we learning from it? It's not what I would call, you know, it's not the approach of the academic, you know, PhDs kind of study that's going to go on. And it's not the yeshiva approach, which is the text is what the text, let's see what it says halakhically and move to the, what we call the Rishonim, to the commentators before the Shulchan Aruch or the Achronim after the Shulchan Aruch, etc. I've been teaching it, I hope, appropriately in my style, more of a literary kind of approach, and we're learning halacha from it as well, but not beyond that. Yes, ma'am. I have a question for my own information. When they carried on a chair, it's not permissible on Shabbat. Are there other things that people of great uh, renown uh, do things that are not permissible on Shabbat? Yeah, there are some things, but you notice know, Horat Sha'a for, for a specific thing. I can't give you an exact thing. 
Um, you know, you do have Rabbi Yoshua coming to Rabbi Gamliel on the day that he thought it was Yom Kippur, carrying things, etc. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have, you, you have, you have the issue of carrying, you have the issue of perhaps Tchum Shabbat, the 2,000 cubits, etc. Um, why he allowed it, etc., it says basically because of, she's such a special woman. Now, that's a lousy answer. Okay, she may have required it of him, I don't know. You know, this was, a t this was one tough lady. This is one tough lady, and uh, you have to take it as such. Mm -hmm. well, no, uh, well, I don't think so. I don't think so. You hear I'm not saying no, but I don't think so. You hear about people's private scrolls, Tamayim in particular. Have they ever uncovered any of these private scrolls? We don't have anything. It's just almost more. We, we have manuscripts. Okay, that's it. You don't have scrolls as such. You know, and again, you have things from the Geniza, you have things from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But, you know, Dead Scrolls are mostly to the biblical world. Cairo Geniza is mostly to the medieval world. That period of time, we have very little. Very little. You know. Am I right? Okay, please. Well, no, but not, not Talmudic times. That's more biblical times in terms of Akkadian. Yeah, biblical, yes. No, I'm talking Talmudic times. In Talmudic times already, you did have scrolls. The tablets already is, right, biblical times, clearly. The Akkadian, Ugaritic, Sumerian, right. And we have found some of those because they were in tablet form. The problem with the scrolls is they don't survive unless they're in, like, the, into the dry climate of Egypt or, or right by the Dead Sea. The rest... Just you'd get destroyed. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. So, yes. I guess I this point here, where uh, she she was carried on a chair, which was generally a forbidden act, since she was a great person in the public meeting. We were reading in the Haftorah last week about David, who did strange things with dance before the ark. Yeah. Right. Now, clearly, that was not considered a, a nice thing. It wasn't considered by Michal, at least, by his wife. Well, all right. That's... But, but nevertheless, is it true, then, is it, is it common, that great people can be excused in their behavior? Not from the sermon? the great writers of, of, of Talmud accept it. So not from the sermon I gave this past Shabbos, for sure. That would be that be exact opposite of what I said this past Shabbos. Okay, so that that would be number one. Uh, so n number two. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm say, I'm, what I'm suggesting, what, and, and right? What I'm suggesting is no. Except no, my immoral behavior. No, but not immoral. No, no, inappropriate. inappropriate. I would say no, and I would say as I did this past Shabbat, prominent leads not to privilege. But to more responsibility, and that's the way they took it as well. So no, I don't think that's the case. Why he made this particular one, I don't know. I have to study that particular section and see what other sessions we have. I don't know that we have anything else. So you're saying our leaders don't excuse? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I, I say I think the opposite. I'm comforted. I I think the I think the exact opposite, and I said so publicly on Shabbat. Pretty strongly, I thought. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I don't remember who it was, so I, I'm not positive if they, they named him. It's not here. Um, Yeah, no, no. I, I, again, it may be. I just don't know for sure. No, but there's a list. There is a list. We do have a list. No, um, but I think Jane's point is it's not, right. it's not Yalta, daughter of right. no, no, I got Jane Exelark. It's Yalta. And that's interesting. Right? So let, 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 to go back to... So you No, know, the point's well taken. It's not like Samson's wife or Noah's wife. Right, okay. So she's mentioned and not the racial thing. Fine. No, that's a good point. I, but historically, I just don't know who it is. Now, there, I, Hurwitz does talk about this one dealing with um, the the Alanki, her interpretation of being transported on Shabbat. First, sort discussed the fact that Yelta was known to be carried in on Alanki on Shabbat, something that is usually prohibited as it is seen as work. The source suggested that perhaps she was allowed to do so because she was needed quickly by someone in the community. Hora Atsha'a. Okay? A known exception to the rule, implying that she played a significant role in the community and some, had some kind of authority. Not such a small accomplishment for a woman living in Talmudic times. Okay, so that's the best I can say. All right. Well, we have a name. I guess the city's named, right? We don't have that. We have a place. We have a place, right? Which is pretty historically important. So let's now finish off this Talmudic section of the parent. Um, let's see what it, what what this this is. Okay, who wants to take this little section? All right, you play first. Go. All right, Misikin. What is Misikin? It is from Sikha, but it was for the summer. Okay? That was, you don't talk. Ah. During Birkat Amazon, you don't talk, basically. It's all a bracha. From the beginning, remember using it for the bracha at the beginning? <laughs> and you're saying Borei Priyagafen at the end. Think of Sheva Brachot as an example. This is now in general. Kos Shel Puranut is something which creates something which is bad. If you will, we'll come back to see what that means. Now this is an interesting one. If you look at Rashi, he says Shehu Shel Zugot. Okay, a cup which is meant for a couple. Vahaomed al Shuchano Zugot Nizok Shedim. The person saying the bracha or saying Mazon and now gives it to a, a to a partnership, if you will, that brings Ayadeh Shedim that they could be hurt. By, by Shadim. Again, you're dealing with the evil eye. It says we're going to continue now with, with the, see what that means. Okay, so what it seems to suggest is one person should do the bracha and not zugot. Okay, Okay, 
So, and it says, Mishum hikon likrat Elohecha. Be ready in the singular to meet your God. And this doesn't perhaps lead it that way. It's not an individual thing, and therefore, perhaps the evil eye can come into it. Okay, I mean, is that enough the way they understand yeah, it? It says, uh, as drinking an even number of cups of wine is dangerous due to demons. So that's an evil eye. Okay. So, I mean, for us, that's just so foreign. Yeah, it, I mean, clearly it is, but again, we all have our superstitions, and anybody who says they don't has their own superstition. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Now, okay, so this is interesting. How many of you, what we call grazing? Right, eating is walk, and you walk. I do this a lot because, of course, it goes right down to your feet, and you don't you don't gain any weight. Right? We all heard that one. Right? Mivarech meumad. You can save your kadamazon while you're standing. Uchshehu ochel meumad. Mivarech miyushav. Okay. When he, I mean, again, this is kind of crazy as such too. When when he, when he's and keep going and when he sits down literally you already know reclining that's how they used to sit in those days right and so there's different ways of doing it standing walking sitting reclining finally vehilchata no matter what you should sit down and do Birkatamazon. It's a Kavashul Chano. Okay? So to show the proper respect, you sit down and do Birkatamazon as such. Alright? So, what I want to, before we kind of leave this part and say Hadranala, let's look at number one. Um, let, let's look at the Tosafot, which you don't normally do to. Ein Mesichim. Yasiach Dad means he shouldn't his his mind shouldn't waver. Okay, he should maintain full concentration. Remember, we had about saying kiddush is such you're supposed to look at it in full concentration. Who hadin? Dibaina that you need, Sarich. Shomea umashmia. Okay? That you you can't let your mind just go astray. The person who does the bracha and the person who listens. So officially, for instance, when you get to a, a Shabbos table, you can say, Does anybody want to do Kiddush? No, you can be Motsi me. Okay? Because everybody has that responsibility to the Hotsi, to say to do the proper Bracha, you must have the proper kavana. Okay, so it used to be the case in, in my parents' seder, everybody did kiddush. Everybody had a chance, at least when we were kids, eventually led to my father Hashem leading kiddush. My custom now is to get to the face of seder and say, Does anybody want to do kiddush? No, no, you do it. They've given me permission, they're now mitkaven in order to do kiddush. Ah, uh, and you're not supposed to stop and talk. 
I should take this text and put it <laughs> on the table during Birkat Amazon at Kiddush. Right? Yeah. We announce Birkat Amazon. We ask people to be seated. Right. right? And to please give us our attention. I know what goes on. <laughs> Present company. I don't want to say include or exclude it. You know yourself. I don't want to get into trouble here. That's not politics. You'll break 400 barrels of wine or something. Or more. So, remember here, once the Umid Kaven, you want to supposed to do Birkat Amazon. We all know that. You should at least jo- join us by, if not being seated, paying attention, responding, responding amen, at least. We can all be monitors. You can't. Well, that's why. Right. That's a good thing to do. And blame it on the rabbis you normally would. Like especially even like the person who's doing it, but it means everybody now who's part of the experience. This has to do now with the blowing, right? You're supposed to remember we we had in Rosh Hashanah. You're supposed to even if you walk behind the the place and you hear the 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 kiot, you're supposed to be you have only good if you have mitkavein if you are have intentionality. So even if you hear different sounds throughout the course of the day, you can still fulfill your obligation. Okay, so even though when you hear the the the, the Talmud says that he, that you you if you hear different voice sounds throughout the course of the day, and you can still fulfill your obligation, clearly you lost your intentionality in the middle. Lechatchila, a priori, that's not appropriate. De facto, it may be appropriate. It may be acceptable. Okay, that sees perhaps there that maybe you were quiet at least from the bracha to the bracha, meaning you showed intentionality for the bracha. Maybe then you talked after that speech and the sounds, but the main thing was the bracha. But what is Birkat Amazon? It's all bracha. So you have to pay attention to the whole thing. Now we've said already, you had to say certain things, remember? Alaris al Amazon, Vineyu Shalayam, etc. ex post facto lo yatsa. So, Hilchata de Kulhu. Since Birkat Amazon is v'yachalta v'savata v'yachalta comes from the Torah, they made it more stringent, and you have to be seated. Meaning, once you're seated, if you're walking, I can tell you the people who are seated at the kiddush will always will mostly participate. The people who are standing and walking around, forget it. Forget it. Anything while those people have been washed. The, 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 but they have to be quiet. Anyhow, at least they have to, they're supposed to answer to the, to the Rabotai Nevareh and Hazanet HaKol to say Amen. And you should be seated for that, is what you're saying. They don't be seated. At least they're quiet. Okay. If they haven't watched, then they don't say Birkat Hazan necessarily. We'll deal with that separately in the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Because mm-hmm. we had different kinds of things that you had to do. Remember, having to do with the, the cup and everything else and how to be clean and da 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 da, etc. So it's, there is a certain level of sanctity and holiness attached to it. And then, notricon. Anybody know what notricon is? It's an abbreviation. 
an abbreviation. Okay? Albert. I have no idea what Rashi Albert is. It must have been a Tosu. It says, okay? take, take the word Savata, right? Take it into Shave it. Okay? Meaning, each word stands now for another word. Okay? You're supposed to be sitting properly for Birkat Amazon. That's what Nukikun is. I haven't done it yet. Where did I get there? Okay? Because we're not finished. I won't do Hadran until we finish it. So now let's go to the Oracha Halacha, where it says Ein Mesichim. Okay, the, per, the, the halacha first of all is that the person holding the wine doing Rekamazon shouldn't talk in between. And the Ramah adds even the people sitting around the table. And the Misubin, you notice again, they're sitting. Maybe reclining, but sitting, not standing. Go ahead. In any way that you ate, standing, grazing, walking back and forth, which is why ultimately, when though everybody, most people are standing during Kiddush, I tell people to be seated for Brikat Amazon. Either you're walk, literally walking and eating, not walking around the table, but walking and eating, where there's no place to sit. Now we can say, we can all say it together looking above, Hadran Hadran means we will return to you. We will return to you this parak of Okay? So, what's left to do on the parak itself is it's really on the Sikum the Perak Zion. It looks like they mixed it up here, at least in my book. Okay, wow. it should be the the Divrei Sikum the Perak Zion. Turn the page. Okay, those who have this, it's not in the other. It may be in the other book. I don't know. The summary to this, the seventh chapter. Okay, I'll read this quickly just so we know what it's about. So it is in English. Okay. So let's, I'll tell you, then let's just somebody read it in English. This will be on your test, so please listen carefully. This is all of what you've studied. I'm not taking anything so far out of the context of what you've studied. So I would expect that everybody will know this properly. So we'll do it in English for those who don't necessarily have it, so nobody has any excuse whatsoever when the <laughs> test comes. You think after 30 years I'm not going to give you a test? Watch out. All right. So you want to restart? Marcy, you want to start? And we'll, we'll, I don't have you don't have the English, okay. Now let's, let's, who has the English on this side, anybody? Alright, so why don't we start with, start with the English, go ahead. This chapter dealt with the halachic determination that any meal in which several people were established as part of the group partaking of that meal requires a zimun. Due to the significance of this mitzvah, members of that group are forbidden to separate and recite grace after meals individually. Okay, we had that. You remember, if you're eating together, you have to stay together. Yeah, that makes sense. 
<coughs> with regard to the details of the halachot of Zimun, although there were sages who sought to add to the details of the Zimun formula, the conclusion reached in this chapter was that in terms of the number of participants, there are but two formulas. The standard formula recited in a quorum of three diners and the formula that includes invocation of the name of God when there are ten or more. That's two and a half lines in the Hebrew. I mean, it's a, this is clearly a much larger reading of it. Yeah. Continue? Yeah, I guess. Okay. I, don't, I guess. Due to the affinity of the Zemun blessing to communal prayer, which requires a quorum of ten men, it is understandable why women were totally or at least to a large extent exempted from it. Although various sages sought to integrate the Zimun blessing and the grace after meals into one cohesive unit, ultimately they remained separate. Grace after meals is a distinct unit comprised of four blessings, even when it is not preceded by a Zimun. Okay, is that the end of the paragraph? Mm -hmm. Okay. Fran, you want to read? No? Okay, Jerry. Within grace after meals, opinions differ whether the four blessings, who feeds all, the blessing of the land, who builds Jerusalem, and who is good and does good, are all of equal standing. Some of the sages held that all of the blessings are alluded to in the Torah. However, the conclusion reached was that the fourth blessing, who is good and does good, is a rabbinic addition and the obligation to recite it is not on a par with the obligation to recite the first three blessings. I hope all this comes back to you in some manner, shape, or form. Okay. Some manner. <laughs> manner, shape, or form. I didn't say... Although their establishment and formulation developed over the course of many generations, their source is the Torah itself. Is that the end of the paragraph? Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Although nope. the halakhic ruling is that in certain circumstances, I can't. One may, you want to do it louder? Here. One may bridge or alter the formula of those blessings. Their essence is certain the three concepts: land, Torah, covenant, and life are always required. A totally different area that was clarified in the course of the discussions with regard to Zimun's blessing relates to foods that have an element of prohibition associated with them, over which it is inappropriate to recite a blessing or to form a zimun. There are various details involved in distinguishing between the food items, however. However, fundamentally, the sages arrived at the following division. Over those items where required gifts were not separated or required action was not performed, but nevertheless, there is no prohibition to derive pleasure from them. One may recite a blessing. However, over those items where the failure to separate the gifts or perform the action results in a prohibition to derive pleasure from them. One may neither, neither recite grace after meals nor receive a blessing. Okay, which is, that's where they, they say it is, and that's where we're actually going to pick up next time. What I'm going to do with you is go a little, again a little bit off text. My colleague, Rabbi Pamela Barmash from uh, St. Louis, Washington University St. Louis, on the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, just wrote a chuva which came out on November 2016, so pretty recent, on and Zimun, from meals that do not include bread from the five species of grain.
So what we're going to do, with your permission, is we're going to read her halakhic paper. There is a paper which is against her decision. Um, it will relate, obviously, to some of the texts that we've had, uh, because you see that the last part, read just that last couple lines again. The however, it's fine. However, those items which where the failure to separate the gifts or perform the action results in a prohibition to derive pleasure from them, one may neither recite the grace after meals nor the simon blessing. Okay, so the question is, what what was what is what's known as koveya suuda? Do you have to have bread in order to do birkat mazon? What happens if you are gluten free? Okay, you never have bread per se. Does that mean now you can't do, you shouldn't do Barkat Amazon, you can't be part of a Zimun, etc.? That's the question that she dealt with, and I thought it'd be interesting since we finished the parak to deal with the halakhic implications of modern kinds of things related to those those last kind of statements. Um, and we'll do start, start that next week. It'll be in English, so everybody can partake. I'll give out copies. Some of the sources are in Hebrew, but they're all translated. Um, it's Fairly, not fairly long, there's a discursus, and then there's a, a, actually a source sheet, and then finally a disagreement, a response to it as well. So it's an interesting way both for me to teach the halakhic framework of the conservative movement on something that is, you know, halakhic realm of what we've been studying, talk a little bit about the Canadian Jewish Law and Standards, and uh, this may take, we'll see how many weeks this takes us uh, in order to complete it. Okay? You don't have to bring your book next week. You're more than welcome to. I, I, I don't want to start bringing it. If people want to take it now, you've got to promise to bring it back. Otherwise, it just. Okay? Can I take one too? Believe that or I'll bring it back. Thank you very much. Please bring it back, though, okay? I